Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4, 19. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I would invite you to go ahead and take your Bibles, either your personal Bible or the Pew Bible in front of you, and turn to page 1016 as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Page 1016. Have you you ever stopped to, to reflect for a moment that in the midst of all of us here, We have assembled to hear the Word of God preached, to receive the sacrament of communion, to commune, of course, with our blessed Lord, but with one another. But have you you stopped to think for a moment that all of us have endured suffering in our lives, yet we're still here? (laughs) Think for a moment. Think about the suffering in your life the suffering in the lives of those in this parish that you know about, maybe tragic suffering or small suffering, but yet here we are. Here we are, praise the Lord, a fulfillment in many ways of our Lord's prayer in the gospel reading. We are here together, worshiping as Christians have for 2,000 years in the midst of pain and suffering. What a testimony that is to each of you, and to us as a parish. We know the world conceives of um, suffering in three ways, or at least has three responses to suffering in one's life. The first is the uh, nihilistic option, the option that when suffering comes, the response is to say, well, there's no point in existence anyway. Suffering's going to be here, so let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we what? For tomorrow we die. The nihilistic option, now this creeps into church sometimes too. It's like we're over, um, we, are, we seem to be kind of over the limit of our suffering and we just begin to believe the lie of the enemy that says, look, nothing matters, it's all death in the end, and that nihilistic option takes over. We see this in the culture at large and it creeps into the church quite often. There's, here's the second though. Of, um, of the four types, I should say, of suffering, that is, conceptions of suffering. The second is this, the blame game of suffering. Well, you deserved it, by the way. You deserve that type of suffering. That's out there in the world. Have you ever gone to someone maybe that's not a believer and you kind of confessed, hey, I'm in a suffering state and this is terrible, and they're like, well, yeah, like, yeah, you're the problem. <laughs> and of course, one of the Christian responses is that, yes, you might in fact be the problem. We'll get there in a moment. First Peter mentions that. But there's the blame game. And this is not new to the world. It's not new to even Christianity or to the Jewish faith. Remember Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar? What were their response to Job? Well, you're the problem. But do you remember what the actual reason for his suffering was? Was it because he was a miserable sinner and offender and God was judging him? No, it was God was giving this suffering to Job to show that he in the end would be a what? A righteous man. 
Then there's the third of the four. My favorite, I think, the naive optimist. Have you been around the naive optimist before, the worldly kind of naive optimist? Hey, sweetie, it's all going to be just fine. Have you ever been in the midst of suffering and someone comes and they just, it, with good intention, it's all, it's going to be just, just fine. Come here. Let me just tell you it's all going to be great. It's kind of naive optimist. And in your soul, you know, as a Christian, yes, like God is going to work out our salvation. He's going to use this suffering, but you don't necessarily want to hear this kind of empty naivete that is often given to us from the culture, and I hate to say it sometimes, in the church, this, don't, don't worry about it, it's going to be just fine. But then there's the fourth, the real response to suffering, the response that's in Scripture. It's the response of our Lord through His life and specifically His passion. It's this Christian realism, a Christian realism. And this is, this is great because we are accused by the world of not being realist. Well, you're just these crazy optimists who believe in God, and you're not, you're not a realist. No, 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 we are a realist. And we see it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What does that mean for us? Beloved, we are realists as Christians. The fiery trial is going to come. When I was younger, um, older spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith would say to me, look, if you haven't experienced suffering yet, you're what? What, what do you think they were saying? You're going to what? You're going to experience it at some point coming in the future. And St. Peter here himself is a realist. He says, look, look, it's going to come, beloved. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So here's the thesis this morning, beloved. Suffering is a painful reality of this world, but it's also an opportunity to deepen our participation in the resurrected life of Jesus for our sanctification and for the salvation of others. Suffering is a painful reality of this world, but it's also an opportunity to deepen our participation in the resurrected life of Jesus for our sanctification and for the salvation of others. St. James write about, he writes about suffering. He says this in James 1. You know this phrase in this passage, I'm sure. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, each of you, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Beloved, often these various trials of suffering in our life, they come upon us so that you and I can be put through a crucible, as it were, for sanctification. And when people see us allowing that suffering to sanctify us, they can more easily believe. How many of you have been in the hospital room of someone that's dying and their family members are in there as well? Has anyone ever been in there? Yes. It's a holy space, isn't it? It's a thin place. And oftentimes we see, of course, mourning and, and, and devastation in the sense of 
We do not want to see our loved one die and suffer. And that is, um, that, that's a holy response. <laughs> the world is not as it should be. That's a holy response. But if you also, have you been in the rooms though where, where there's that holy response, that is things are not as they should be and it hurts and it's wounding. We don't want them to leave us. But have you also been in that thin place where the people say, but here's the thing, whether in life or in death, I am trusting in God, in His providence, in what He is doing in reality. And when you've been in those moments, when you've really been in those moments where people are still confessing the faith as delivered and saying, I don't know why this is happening, what's going on, but I trust in God, that holy place becomes a sanctifying place for us. It becomes a a, a point in time, a moment in time a thin place in time where we too are strengthened in our faith. One of my favorite theologians talks um, in terms of the new heaven and the new earth being a place where you and I will be able to remember our entire lives, all the suffering in particular that has happened to us, and in remembering it, we will see that God saw fit in His goodness, His infinite goodness and mercy to redeem it all. And that is a part of the beauty of what we will see in the life to come. That our suffering here in this life, all of it, that was concretized in this life, all of it was in fact redeemed by God Himself and used for His purposes one way or another. St. Paul goes on, he writes in uh, chapter 5 of Romans, Not only that, but we rejoice, he says, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the sanctifying moment of suffering, if we can give that over to our Lord, builds our character. And when it builds our character, it produces hope. I started off with that thanksgiving that even in the midst of all of our sufferings here, we're still here this morning worshiping God. That actually um, goes, I think, beloved, to, um, to strengthen our hope because we have been sanctified in our character to say even in the midst of death, of suffering we will continue to say alleluia. We will continue to believe, and that instills hope within us. I played um, uh, sports when I was younger, and I say that because I don't do it much anymore because I'm afraid of, like, tearing a knee out and then having to pay copays, these things that adults have to do, pay copays and these things. But I remember my coaches would always say this, and maybe this, I hate to use a sports analogy because maybe half of you are like, I don't care about sports, but maybe you can understand this. Um, I think it's the same for music, for anything that you devote time and practice to. Have you ever had a coach or a music instructor or someone say to you, okay, keep practicing, keep practicing, and as you're practicing, they'll come in for a moment, just a moment in time, at least a good coach or a good teacher, they won't spend tons of time encouraging you because they don't want to go to your head, but they'll come in and they'll say, did you see it? Did you hear it? Did you hear the notes that you were playing? That, that's it. That's precisely correct. Or to see, okay, like your swing as you're trying to hit a baseball. There it was. You knocked it right to center field, a line drive. That's exactly what we want. Good job. 
have you, have you experienced that positive encouragement? When you do, what does that build within you? It builds within you hope that you are actually moving towards being an accomplished musician, an accomplished athlete, et cetera, et cetera. And beloved, when we are able to encourage one another, when we see someone in the midst of suffering continuing, even with tears and frustration, to say, I believe in God and in his son and that he will redeem this and that he will strengthen me even in the midst of my misery, that produces character and then finally hope within us. Let's turn to our text, verse 13. But rejoice, St. Peter says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also be glad when his glory is revealed. One of my favorite theologians says this, and hear me clearly, the Christian stance is not some sort of warped enjoyment of suffering, far from it. But while finding strength in enduring suffering in solidarity with Jesus, we Christians anticipate the day of liberation, the gray of, j- of great joy when all suffering will be overcome with Jesus' triumphant return, the revelation of His glory. We as Christians don't have a warped enjoyment of suffering. Suffering is not good in and of itself. It's actually, Scripture says, a problem because of the fall. But the beautiful thing is just as death will be redeemed through Jesus Christ, so too can suffering be redeemed. Verse 14, Peter says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, the Christians receiving this letter in Asia Minor from Peter, St. Peter, They were undergoing a lot of, um, yes, existential suffering in their own lives, but also suffering that was caused because of their devotion to Jesus as God. They were being insulted, persecuted. Some of them were losing jobs even in this time. But St. Peter says, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. And I wonder if Peter is writing this verse with the memory of the Sermon on the Mount in mind when Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to talk to the younger generation for a moment, those of you that are in college or grad school or high school or even young elementary school. You may be... um, you may be experiencing some level of, of persecution or resistance at your school, even maybe for adults in your workplace, because you're a believer, because you believe that, for instance, suffering is redeemable because of Jesus Christ, or that God exists and that the moral law comes from Him. Maybe in saying these things, you're getting some pushback in your workplace, at your school, let me remind you of St. Peter's words, that actually, that's a blessed state. Because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. You have not denied the faith, but you are speaking the faith in the midst of resistance. We see verse 15 as we move on. St. Peter says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I began the sermon with this notion 
that the blame game response to suffering can actually have a bit of truth to it. St. Peter says basically this, if you're suffering because of your sins, because of being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler in other people's business and you're suffering because of that, that's unholy. Well, let me say this, that's suffering that comes because of your unholiness, suffering that's not um, designated by God Himself. Suffering that comes from our sin. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Again, I wonder if St. Peter, as he's writing verse 16 here, if he's thinking about his own having been ashamed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, St. Peter says, but let him glorify God in that name. Thrice, St. Peter is ashamed of being associated with our Lord. I'm sure that's the underpinning for him writing this to the church in Asia Minor, saying, don't be ashamed like I was, but actually glorify in that name. When he says in that name here in the text, beloved, what what he refers to is the name Christian. Because it wasn't really until Constantine of the 4th century when Christianity was legalized and allowed to kind of flourish in the West, that name Christian actually came with negative connotations. And he's saying, don't be ashamed of that name, but glorify God when you are being called a Christian, for you have the truth. Verses 17 through 18, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This notion that some suffering comes because of our sin, and God, in fact, judges sin. And He judges it within the household of God. He judges it within the household of God for our own salvation, for our own sanctification and redemption. But Peter is saying if he begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The implication is this. In the midst of your suffering, stay faithful to our Lord and others will see it. And when others will see it, they will be moved to believe and be part of that righteous remnant that Peter says is scarcely saved. And finally, our text ends this morning with these words. I encourage you to follow along. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This was the verse I began my sermon with. Each of you that are suffering according to God's will, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's the tension. Here's the rub. That we can ideologically entrust our souls, as it were, to a creator while no longer doing good, while just sitting and kind of sulking and suffering. No, Peter says, he says this, trust in God and entrust your entire being to that faithful creator while doing good. We often see good works as something to, um, to not preach on very often lest we preach the law. I'm not here to preach the law. I'm here to say this, 
that when we believe and when we persevere in good works, beloved, our character is built up. And as Paul said, when our character is built up, so too is our hope. And when we have hope, we can endure suffering faithfully as believers. Let me close with a passage that Peter wrote from his second epistle. I think this is so um, important for us to hear as we are called by Peter to entrust our souls to the good creator, but also to live and to practice good works. Here's what 2 Peter says, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Let me rephrase that, uh, repeat that. So that through them, through His promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, when you come to church, when you confess Jesus Christ is crucified, when you ask the Lord to redeem your suffering, and when you continue in good works, virtuous works as unto the Lord, you will increase in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says here. And beloved, where you will increase in knowledge and in character, you will increase in hope. So that when the day of suffering comes upon your life, you will not flee to the world or flee to other things, but you will flee finally to the wounds of our Lord Jesus Christ, who he himself, through suffering on the cross, sanctified all our suffering in redemption for his sake and for ours. You see, suffering is a painful reality of this world, but it's also an opportunity to deepen our participation in the resurrected life of Jesus and our sanctification for ourselves and for the salvation of others. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we hold up all our weakness to your strength, our failure to your faithfulness, our sinfulness to your perfection our loneliness to your compassion, our little pains to your great agony on the cross. We pray that you will cleanse us, strengthen us, guide us, so that in all ways our life may be lived as you would have them be lived, without cowardice and for you alone. Show us how to live in true humility, true contrition, true hope, and finally, true love. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.